Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome everyone to this latest IFG live podcast where we're going to look not at whether we should try to achieve net zero, but as we try to achieve net zero, how and who should pay for it. Parliament, of course, has accepted a target that the UK should be a net zero emitter of greenhouse gases by 2050. And quite recently, it also accepted the ambitious sixth carbon budget proposed by its independent advisor, the Climate Change Committee. And government is producing strategies. Today, uh, talking on Wednesday, we have seen the government set out its plans for transport decarbonisation. We've uh, had the Treasury's interim review on paying for net zero. We've yet to see the final version. We are promised uh, more to come, not least a strategy on housing and buildings. And this is an area, maybe a rare area in today's United Kingdom, of political consensus on the need to act. And evidence, not least from the Citizens' Assembly commissioned by Parliamentary Select Committees last year, that the public accepts that case. But what is relatively unaddressed is what lies behind those headline targets, the details of what needs to be done and how we will pay for it. Uh, Today, that's going to be our focus. And uh, this could be the big political debate of coming months and years. We've already seen some signs of disquiet about some of the proposals that, uh, that may be coming forward and some discussions in the press, but nothing that official at the moment. So to have that debate, I am joined by a terrific panel First of all, and to set us straight, and of course, the Institute for Government still believes in experts, I am joined by that sweet spot on climate change economics, uh, the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and simultaneously member of the Climate Change Committee, Paul Johnson. Welcome, Paul. Then we have Bim Afalami. Bim was elected Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harperton in 2017. And he's chair of the APPG, that's the All-Party Parliamentary Group, for Renewable and Sustainable Energy. So BIM, I think you can say, is on the side of achieving net zero. But obviously, he will be able to give us insight into what's going on within the Conservative Party uh, on this topic. Then I'm delighted to be joined by Vera Hobhouse. Vera has been Liberal Democrat MP for Bath since 2017 as well and is the Liberal Democrat spokesman for the climate emergency and energy. And last, but by absolutely no no means least, I'm joined by James Meadway. James is an economist and director of the Progressive Economy Forum. He was previously an economic advisor to John McDonnell as Shadow Chancellor and Chief Economist at the New Economics Foundation. He's been looking at climate economics for really quite a long time. So let's start off uh, with an assessment by Paul. Paul, a critical part of the Climate Change Committee advice to ministers on net zero was it could be delivered at a manageable economic cost, at least by 2050. And it's produced quite a lot of graphs showing that actually, you know, these things sort of balance out over the long run, assuming we, of course, get the policies right. Uh, We can debate whether the track record gives us confidence on that. But I just wondered if you could talk us through that assessment that was in the Climate Change Committee recommendation that we could go to net zero. Uh, sure. Hi. Um, the yes, the if you get policy right, 
Uh, and that is a really important um, thing to say up front. And it's something that was stressed also by Nick Stern 15 years ago when he did his big report on climate change. If you get policy right, uh, then the transition can be done at relatively modest cost in total over time. And that's partly because costs are falling over time. The costs of technology uh, is falling. The costs of renewable electricity now are actually vastly less than anyone projected a decade ago. Um, the costs of things to come will be more significant, um, particularly when it comes to uh, reducing the amount of emissions from our homes, from our gas central heating, and so on. Um, and the costs of transitioning to electric cars, electric lorries, and so on will be substantial. But the running costs of most renewable things are lower than the running costs of uh, fossil fuels. So it costs a lot of money, many billions, uh, to move us to where we are on electricity. But we're already pretty much at the point where green electricity, in terms of its running costs, is down there at the same level as uh, as you get with fossil fuels. Electric cars are going to be more exp- oh, well, currently much more expensive up front, but are cheaper to run. And the expectation is they may be less expensive up front uh, within a decade uh, or so. Certainly their overall lifetime cost will be lower. Uh, so, so the fact that the overall economic cost is not enormous shouldn't blind us to the fact that first, the upfront cost in terms of investment will be very substantial, tens of billions a year in additional uh, investment. Now, that's a, that's a serious and important amount. And secondly, that the distribution of those costs really, really matters. And I don't think people should take away from the correct conclusion that the overall macroeconomic cost will be low, the incorrect conclusion, that therefore that will not have much impact on us uh, as a society or individuals from an economic point of view, both over time and between people. So the cost, for example, of moving away from gas central heating will be substantial. And the way we pay for that, whether that is through tax or whether that is through bills or whether that is in some other way, will matter enormously for how well off people are and indeed how acceptable it is. And the cost, as I suggested, of investing at the moment in the technology uh, for change in renewable uh, power is going to be substantial. So yes, low, very, very manageable costs over time. Uh, We have to manage it in a way which provides those, make sure those costs are minimised. But we have to recognise that the costs up front are significant and we have to recognise that we need to manage it in a way which is fair um, to to people and households uh, because we will lose their support uh, if they don't, A, understand what's happening and, B, understand that uh, the way that it's happening uh, is done in a way that shares the costs appropriately. So, Paul, can you give me a bit of ideas? I mean, say I am somebody at the moment living in a reasonable-sized house with uh, gas central heating. 
what it, the government wants to install 600,000 heat pumps per year by 2028. That's one of the steps in the Prime Minister's 10-point plan. So just give me an example of that. What's that going to mean for me in terms of upfront costs when I have to or I'm persuaded to replace my boiler? And um, what does it do to my bills over time? How quickly do I get a payback for, uh, uh, for that upfront investment? I think one of the problems is that we don't yet know um, how much these things are going to cost in the future. Certainly, I could not make the case to people at the moment that there is an economic case for them to replace their boiler with a, a heat pump um, at the moment. These things are pretty expensive, pretty disruptive, um, and uh, you know, without significant subsidy at the moment, uh, those kinds of changes are not going to happen. Uh, hopefully, uh, they will be cheaper uh, come 2028, but I'm afraid I don't have a number in mind at the moment. One of the things that's going to be terribly important here is that we uh, make these moves uh, alongside the normal cycle of people making changes anyway. A lot of people change their boilers um, every year. If we're going to move to um, heat pumps, then it's important that those get uh, put into people's houses at the same moment that they would otherwise have been changing their boilers, or indeed, if we move to hydrogen. And I think one of the difficulties here is I still don't think we have a clear view of the extent to which we're going to replace um, uh, gas gas boilers with either heat pumps or uh, boilers which are running on hydrogen or straightforward electric heating, and for which households, uh, which households are going to move uh, in which directions. I think one of the problems here is the combination of uncertainty about the direction uh, of travel policy and technology-wise, the uncertainty for individual households about what's going to be best for them, and the uncertainty uh, about the cost going forward. And perhaps, in my view, this the, 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 the thing that you've landed on, which is the household heating part of this, I think is the most difficult, both from a policy point of view and from the point of view of public um, engagement and acceptability probably of all of the things we need to do to get to net zero. Okay, well, let's dig into that a bit more. Bim, um, is there nervousness about on the Conservative benches about this? The Prime Minister's put this commitment out there. Uh, Paul is talking about quite big but quite uncertain costs. We know, for instance, that no Chancellor at the moment feels they can even raise fuel duty in... Uh, in nominal terms, let alone real terms, because they don't think they can get it through the through Parliament. So are your colleagues on board for some of the sort of scales of changes that Paul have been uh, Paul has been talking about? The short answer is yes, but the longer answer is I think that the devil will be in the detail. So uh it is it has overwhelming support. This agenda has overwhelming support on Conservative benches and don't take my word for it listen to any speech of any Conservative MP representing any seat across the country, uh, whether they be Red Wall, London, South East, wherever it is. However, just to get into the detail of this, I think that um, Paul is right around um, the areas of cost that are uh, clearly uncertain and are difficult. And you don't have to be a genius to know that if you impose costs on people in politics, that's always going to be hard. It doesn't matter what it's for. However, there are some real opportunities here, and I think it's important we don't lose sight of these. The first is that 
though the costs of, say, heat pumps are expensive today, these costs change over time and they change if we get the right policies to drive down those costs using the private sector and the free market hopefully will innovate and drive down the costs of things like heat pumps and not just heat pumps but lots of other things besides so it's important not to think of the costs of heat pumps today and think that that's what they're going to cost in 2028 or, or whenever that's the first point the second point is this and this is um dare i say it i think it's something where parts of the left uh, and I think of James in particular, and I happen to read his stuff, and he's you know he's done a lot of interesting work. Parts of the left can agree with parts of the right, which is there is a potential here for economic transformation of parts of the UK, and indeed how our whole economy works. And if we get this right, and whether that be in terms of energy transformation, wind power, nuclear, whether it be in terms of skilled jobs doing various different things. These have regional aspects as well as, as well as other ones. And I think that, yes, there are costs, but the opportunities for Britain to be a leader in certain areas, particularly in areas of high technology, are there. And so the, the hardest thing about this issue is to, as Paul said, think about these uncertainties going into the future. But I think if we approach it with confidence and with the realisation that unless we do something, all of these things are going to get worse, uh, I think there can actually be real opportunities and positive benefits for the people of this country. And we shouldn't just look at this in a sort of upfront, early cost sort of way, because actually you've got to think of the costs and opportunities over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But if I press you a bit more on that, and I'm going to bring the uh, our other politicians or uh, uh, political panellists in. If I press you on that, if I'm an early adopter, you talk, you want to scale up. We know that we need to develop supply chains for some of these things. That was arguably one of the problems with the way in which the government went around the Green Homes Grant. Uh, you want me to do this now before I've got the benefit of those big cost reductions coming through because it hasn't scaled yet. Uh, would you be happy if the Chancellor in the spending review announced that I would get a, quite a big grant from the government to install a heat pump if I did it now. So I sort of took one for the team if I did that now as part of the scaling up of the market. Is that the sort of thing we might see? We've seen some talk in the press about possible ways of uh, of giving bonuses back to households. Is that the sort of thing that you think is under discussion in government? It is under discussion because it's necessary. Uh, because if we want to make the transformation we're going to have to give people enough financial wherewithal to do that. And even people at the well-off end of the income distribution, at A, a lot of them don't realise they're at the well-off end of the income distribution. And secondly, it's politically incredibly difficult. And so if you want people to do the thing we need them to do for, for environmental reasons, that's going to have to be financially attractive to them. And I've, I've written a piece on Conservative Home where I'm a columnist every other week and, and said something pretty similar to that. So yes, we are going to have to make it financially um, attractive to people at the early stages to help make sure that the market then drives down the cost so that it just becomes no more expensive than what we're currently doing. Okay, I'm going to come back to Paul for his comments. Vera, what do you think of that sort of idea that there's sort of quite big sort of upfront grants to help early adopters on this? Is that where the Liberal Democrats would be? 
So, first of all, um, nobody would deny the complexity of the issue and having delayed action, and I don't want to blame this particular government over this, it's, it's any government uh, can probably take, a, or you know, any, any political party, and not just in the UK, across um, the globe, can take uh, a share of responsibility that we haven't acted fast enough, we knew about the climate emergency for a long time, and yet, yet governments um, have delayed action first, there was a I don't know, the financial crisis, and then there was austerity, and then there was Brexit, and then there was uh, now the COVID crisis. In, by the way, the government has thrown large amounts of money at, at COVID. So if we are talking about government actually um, um, taking an issue seriously and think it is a government that needs to come and support something financially and spend trillions um, or, or billions of pounds um, on something, the government could do it tomorrow. So it is actually a question of political will. But I am a liberal Democrat and I don't only believe that the state should do everything. So indeed, it is also about setting free um, the market and businesses with innovation and supporting them to do the right thing. But let me just give you an example of uh, uh, where, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, a simple question of um, how you incentivize a consumer. So I, I, let, let's talk about myself. I am somebody who would probably be, be uh, easily classed all MPs as a, as, a, as a good earner who can actually be an early adapter. And I have indeed bought an electric car. <laughs> the electric, the upfront cost is high. I have bitten that bullet, but charging that car in my city of Bath, and, and Bath is no no different from any other places in the UK, has got very few fast charging opportunities. So what is uh, currently um, on offer by the council are four charge, uh, car charging points with, which take me an overnight of over 12 hour charge to do it. If I wanted to bring out um, a cable out of my house, it would take me two days to charge it just off um, um, the electricity supply of my house. So what we really urgently need is a lot of fast charging points. And that costs money to install the cables, the substations, and so on and so forth. Our local council is cash strapped. They say, we don't have the money. Um, uh, the, the ability to do it is there, you know, our, um, our energy distribution centers, the Western Power Distribution, say we can do it, but it costs this. Who is picking up that upfront cost? And how is that being managed? And this is exactly the point where I, I believe that the, the, the public sector has to come in, um, uh, government has to come in to support the fast building, fast building out of infrastructure for fast, fast charging of cars. And there are many other examples in that same bracket uh, where ultimately we need government action at first. Uh, and, and, and the industry and, and, and the private consumers and householders will come behind. James, this is sounding a bit like a sort of recipe for big spending from both the Conservatives and from the Liberal Democrats. Um, maybe one is capital, maybe one is uh, is not classified as capital. Um, where would Labour be on this? Would it just say, basically, we've got to do this, interest rates are very low, let's just borrow to pay for this sort of maybe the cost that we're going to incur between now and 2030, 2032? I think you've made a large part of the case there just now that with interest rates as low as they are, and frankly, that, that situation is likely to continue for some period of time. The case for taking action now, for making large capital investment now, is, is very, very solid. And if you're talking about the kind of transitions we are talking about here, this is you know, 20, 30 years out that, that you're having to look at making these investments for. So so the case for doing it now, I think, is is clear from the kind of the financing side. It's also made clear, I think, by the Office of 
budget responsibilities, very good uh, report on the fiscal risks, which really lays down the case of saying you need to move on this now because that's when the costs of moving are, are lowest. That's when the costs of transition are lowest. The longer we leave this, the more we delay, the higher the costs uh, start to appear in the future. So there's a really solid economic case, I would say, for, for moving now. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm quite glad there's, there's a kind of consensus around a lot of this now. The, this isn't the case uh, that you know, the last sort of decade or so, I suppose, it's shifted. That broadly speaking, everyone accepts the need to move on climate change, that we have to do something. The question is what you do, as you said. That's good to have that consensus. It's good that there are conservative MPs all over the country talking about the green industrial revolution, the jobs that people created. Uh, that, is, that is all a good, positive thing if you're talking about a long-term transition. But I think there's also an underlying problem here, which is that if you're talking about making those long-term investments, and we were just talking about this uh, at the start, if you're talking about making those long-term investments, we also need institutions that can think on those kind of long terms. Yeah, the Committee on Climate Change is there as an advisory body. It doesn't necessarily immediately impact on what the Treasury, for example, and the Treasury is probably the worst culprit here, thinks about the world. That This is a department that is biased over a long period of time now towards short-term decision-making, towards not thinking too carefully about the future, towards notoriously actually making a lot of its investments, far too many of them, concentrating in London and the South East. So as well as saying, okay, this is what governments want to do, because we're talking about a very long period of time here, there's, there's need to think a bit about how we change some of our institutions so they can work a bit better over these long periods of time. And do you have a sort of proposition on that? I'm quite interested in that before I'm going to pass it back to Paul to talk about whether we can just say this is fine, we just borrow for everything and everything will be hunky-dory and we don't need to, don't need to talk anymore about how to pay for this. But James, what sort of institutional change? I mean, I think let's, let's be a bit careful on, on this one because look, this you can borrow for a large chunk of the capital investment and then there's parts of what we're going to have to do which will involve changes to how we live and where we work, which, which are going to involve costs. Like There will be jobs that aren't there and there'll be jobs that replace. Now, that is a cost. That is a change. So we've got to be quite clear that this is going to impose lots and lots of different costs and maybe some benefits across society. And what we want is a way of managing that. And that, I think, is where actually it's the Institute of Public Policy Research's report just out today uh, from the, the Commission on Environmental Justice makes very, very clear that if you want public support for this, You've got to be realistic about the costs, but also realistic about how those costs are going to land. And that's, that's a public discussion about changes to the tax system, how maybe carbon pricing will operate, what changes we make, for instance, thinking about wealth taxes or other forms of taxation down the line. I don't think you can solve this by just saying borrowing. That will get you some part of the way, but it won't get you all, all of the way. Specifically on the Treasury, the, the, the sort of nub of this is really how it thinks about technically how it thinks about time discounting, how it thinks about what the value is of the future and how it makes decisions relating to that. And that's codified in something called the Green Book, which every so often, these are the rules that govern how the Treasury is supposed to make decisions. Every so often, governments have a go at rewriting it. It would be a good idea, and I think this government has actually talked about doing this, to rewrite it with a view to thinking, okay, now we want a sense of what the environmental, long-term environmental costs and benefits of investment are, as well as the short-term sort of cost-benefits analysis it usually does. I mean, Paul, I think you used to be in charge of the Green Book in one of your earlier incarnations at the Treasury's chief microeconomist, but I might be wrong there. But do you think we need to tweak the Green Book? Does that help? And what can we legitimately borrow for? And what actually do we have to say, no, 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 we need to bite the bullet and make some decisions now about, uh, about changing the structure of the tax system, putting the bill onto consumers, Whatever, because otherwise 
government may end up paying up front for lots of things and then just allow people to enjoy the benefits longer term. Is that is that okay, or should we be seeking to capture a bit of the benefits people will be getting longer term from these lower uh, lower operating expenditures that the Climate Change Committee is always pointing to? Well, uh, yes, I was I was responsible for the Green Book uh, a long time ago. Um, it's it's developed this kind of mythical status as the sort of um, the thing that determines all spending and investment decisions. I, it certainly didn't look like that to me when I was in the Treasury. Um, it was sort of, uh, you know, most of these decisions ended up being uh, more political than driven by um, uh, analysis uh, carried out to precise Green Book standards in any case. But the, but, but the important point here, I think, is that you know, we have a government and indeed um, all political parties who are committed to net zero. And therefore, you have to analyse uh, policies with respect to their um, efficacy in terms of moving towards net zero at the most, um, if it, in the most efficient way. And that has to be built into uh, the way that policies are um, determined. Um, in terms of the, you know, who pays and, and, and how. Uh, I mean, don't forget that um, actually most of the investment so far, which is, of course has come uh, in the power supply um, side of things, has been private. It's come uh, effectively, therefore, from people's bills. Um, something actually, you know, in, in a sense, it's a remarkable trick to have pulled off. The price per unit electricity that we buy has gone up a fair bit uh, because we have paid for the windmills and the solar panels and so on um, through the way that electricity is contracted for at the moment. Um, and one of the reasons that's been manageable is that because so many of our um, our appliances and lighting and so on has become so much more efficient as a result of other regulations which have insisted that they become more efficient, the actual impact on people's overall bills on average has been pretty limited. Uh, most of the investment in uh, which is going to lead to electric cars, again, is clearly happening within the big international car companies, which is actually a very good, I think, example of the role that government can play in directly or indirectly uh, leading where private sector investment goes because the car manufacturers have understood uh, that not just the British government, but across the world, people are insisting that we will be moving to electric cars, and therefore that's where they've put their uh, that's where they've put their money and very 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 large amounts of money. And and and, and within that is a really important political lesson, uh, which is that if you're going to get uh, private sector investment and efficient policy, you need a clear and stable and absolutely plain policy framework and set of expectations. And I think, um, you know, remarkably, actually, many governments have achieved that in a way which has led to the direction of international private capital in the tens, if not hundreds of billions, for things uh, towards, um, towards green technology. Yes. Can, I just, uh, yeah. can I just come in at, 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 at some point? I, I have my hand up and I just want to um, sort of correct there that, you know, I haven't been advocating that absolutely a government just throws money at it and then everything should be fine. First of all, if government borrows money, and we all know that, 
it, it, you know, it has to be paid some time back over time, although sort of um, uh, economic thinking seems to be shifting a little bit. But I mean, I do remember um, the coalition years where, um, you know, the Lib Dems were part of a coalition advocating um, that we have to, have to live within our means. And I, I still um, am, am somewhat, um, uh, you know, in, in that field of thinking. We can't forever just um, do government spending and expect that that government is not being paid back for and of course the public and the consumer will ultimately through taxation or other means pay back for what government borrows so it has to be of course um some sort of balance of um, of, of, of whether you know whether this is private investment or whether um, it's public investment in the end the consumer the household or the individual the voter pays for it either through bills or through taxation and the most important thing is that the, the poorest and those who can't can least afford it are not ending up with the highest burden of the cost. Uh, and that is difficult, um, and no doubt about it. Uh, and, and to get that right, where you create the right incentives and disincentives um, so that, um, that, that the balance of that is, is right and fair and the transition is fair, that is um, the difficulty any government will face and any political party who makes plans around it. And let me just sort of come back to one other point around fairness, where we are losing jobs and need to recreate jobs. The difficulty of planning for these new jobs and knowing where they would be and start the training programs and even, you know, the longer training programs for further education colleges or even university courses versus maybe some smaller training uh, training courses um, of boiler installations. You know, hydrogen boilers might be different from current um, or are different from current um, uh, natural gas boilers. So that might be just smaller training courses. But the whole planning of that, of, of, of planning for the new jobs of the future and doing Doing a transition that doesn't hit particular communities particularly hard, that's the skill of, of, of the government of the day. And I'm not entirely certain whether um, the Conservative government that we currently have has quite understand that, understood that challenge. Bim, I'm going to bring you in, but I wanted to ask, and we've obviously had the report of the Green Jobs Task Force uh, commissioned by government out today as well. It's a big day for green announcements. But I wanted to... to to uh, let you make your points, but I also wanted to ask you and press you a bit more. Um, maybe I look at the wrong people on Twitter, but on Twitter, Claire Fox, who is a uh, former member of the Brexit Party, now a, made a peer by Boris Johnson, was saying that on the transport strategy that basically this was a fine for Tesla drivers, but bad for all ordinary motorists. Um, would mean ordinary motorists were stuck with a huge cost of changing to electric cars or they would lose their jobs as we sort of phased out diesel HGVs. Um, we've said, you know, there's obviously an incentive now. We're seeing increasing numbers of EVs being bought. But at some point, people who drive their cars, not not change them every couple of years, but change them every 15, 20 years, will be stuck with sort of redundant petrol and diesel cars. What do we do about those sorts of people that you like the sort of laggards rather than the first movers we were talking about at the start? Good question. Um, I think that there are two aspects to this. The first is we need to make sure, and I don't want to repeat what I said, but the private sector being the driving force to drive costs down through a combination of the right signals, long-term signals sent by government, as Paul has already said, and also through innovation uh, in technology. And I think that we need to make sure that the electric vehicle alternative is 
as affordable as the current petrol and diesel car is today. If the private sector can't do that in the next 10 years, then we're going to be in big problems. But the second point is what we have to do is we have to make sure that we fully understand and map and have a very good grasp of the areas where it is going to be hardest for distributional, regional or, or other reasons for people to, to, to change or modernise uh, how they get around, how they work, the buildings they live in or whatever. And we have to have a good handle on that. I think that the difficulty right now, and I'm doing a lot of work on this at the moment, is there isn't really a lot of clarity on that question. There is quite a lot of vague understanding that there are certain parts of the country where there are carbon-intensive jobs, but there isn't that real detail. And I think that that is needed. And to support what Vera said uh, around understanding sort of green jobs and skills at university courses and technical colleges and the like, the government needs to start creating public frameworks of green jobs which max which match existing skills and competences to a defined set of jobs so that people can get a sense of what they're doing today, how that might change, because that is all important to give people the confidence that this isn't some political fad uh, that's going to go away with the next government. This is something that is going to be here for the next 20, 30, 40 years for the whole of their working lives. And if we do that, combined with all the private sector stuff and the government, that's how we get the lasting change that I believe does result in a lot of economic opportunity for this country. I don't think we should over-focus on the cost. Um, I want to focus on one bit, which isn't, isn't a direct cost. It's a consequence of moving to net zero. We know that we currently raise around £28 billion a year, which is a reasonable slug of uh, tax revenue from fuel duty. If we do make this transition to electric vehicles, we can assume that that sort of disappears from the public coffers. I wonder if anyone would like to come in there. James, I'm going to throw this to you first. I mean, do we just take that on the chin or where might we look to make that up? Is this the time... No, uh, I think lots of people were saying that roads will still be congested if we have loads of electric cars on them. Our cities will be. Is this the time to make a decisive move to road pricing? Uh, successive governments have balked at that. Is there some other way of replacing that big slug of revenue? Or do we just say the tax system always adapts over time to changes in behaviour and this is just another one it'll have to have to take on the chin? James? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a critical question, I think. I mean, you could, if you want, you can just sit there and say, yes, a tax system will take it and we'll accept a higher deficit because of this for a period of time. The downside of doing that is, is back to this problem of the distribution of, of costs and benefits, not so much because the deficit is higher, but in practice, you're giving people who switch to an electric vehicle a kind of bonus relative to anybody who's got a, a fuel car, a conventional fuel car at that point in time. So there's a distribution of costs and benefits that I think any government in the future is going to want to look at and and try and uh, do something about. And that suggests another form of taxation. The most likely one, the most obvious one, is something like road pricing in some form or another. And there's various suggestions of what you might want to do around that. Uh, Quite appealing, potentially, is to say that you would would, um, would devolve this. You'd start to say, okay, different parts of the country can levy their own versions of of road pricing, of, of electric vehicle levy. 
studies, this sort of thing, and give them an extra bit of income that they can spend on the infrastructure that obviously they still need to, need to use there. The other part of it, I think, is that there's a heavy focus on electric vehicles uh, in this country in particular, because you know, we have a very good, very productive, very effective car manufacturing industry, rescued actually, uh, with government action in particular after the 2008 crash. Um, things like the cash for clunkers, where people could hand in their old cars, get money off a new one, was a very effective way of sort of stoking up demand for cars and could be a decent way to get electric vehicles out there. But we focus on it and we put a lot of attention to making this happen when there's bigger wins with potentially fewer costs elsewhere in the economy, things like retrofitting housing, huge numbers of jobs, uh, good, potentially good quality jobs right the way across the country that can be created uh, around a, a mass retrofitting program. Looking over to America, the, the idea of a the Climate Conservation Corps, uh, modelled on the New Deal in the 1930s. I mean, potentially there's lots of remedial work that needs to be done where those jobs can be created. So I think there's a bit of a risk with electric vehicles where we, where we put a lot of attention on it because people can see it's there, they can see the technologies there, the industry's moving in this direction, and the risk is we start to miss out some of the other things that need attention also. Then, Vera, any proposals for how you might replace that $28 billion of uh, fuel duty? Well, as I said, I think the most obvious one and the one that looks closest to Ferris is, is uh, something similar to something like a road pricing mechanism would be, you know, at least passably fair because right? it's people for use. Yeah, I mean, if you're asking me directly the question, um, it, you know, so, so much will change. So currently, um, the government subsidizes the, 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 the gas and oil industry um, through our uh, gas bill. So, you know, certain things um, are... Uh, are going to also not be there. Um, and, and, and so much will change, and, and we have to change in such a short period of time that I know that it, it might sound scary uh, for any of your listeners or, or the people who uh, you engage in, in this debate, but we shouldn't only look at all of this as a, as a negative, but also as a positive. Um, I mean, if, if, we, if we look at, uh, you know, the transformation in, in the way we travel, there could be a lot of positives. Um, car, uh, Bath, for example, is massive, has massive air pollution problems Air pollution is a killer, uh, you know, through, through, through traveling in a different way and not with petrol or diesel cars or actually also has benefits. It has health benefits. It has individual benefits. Um, um, so let's not just look at all of this just as a loss or um, uh, as something um, where we have to pay a high price, but where there's also actually some positives at the end of it. One, one of the things that I think one also needs to look at is... Um, um, the the uh, the inequality, if you wish, between urban and rural settings. So in urban um, settings and in London, uh, settings in London and Manchester and big cities, actually a lot of people choose not to have cars anymore. So it's it's a bit of a generational thing as well that we are so dependent on, on our individual cars. And I've just had a meeting with somebody about car sharing. So there, there are lots of um, um, ideas out there and the improvement of public transport, modal shifts and walking and cycling for smaller distances. All of that is... It's relatively easy for people who live in cities and towns, um, but it's more difficult for people um, who live in, in rural areas. And, and, and to, to look at, at everything across the board in a fair way, as I say, there is complexity out there. A government has, has a big challenge on its hands. Um, uh, it, it is good to think that there is cross-party consensus that we have no alternative, to be quite honest, than, than getting to net zero. Uh, it, it is good to know, and everybody needs to work together on that one. But let's not just look at it all as just a lot but possibly also as, as quite a lot of gains, including uh, in, in what we pay, who pays for what, and for example, subsidies um, to the oil and gas industry might go, um, and that frees up the, 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 the Treasury. Bim, do you think there's any appetite in the Conservative Party for road pricing? Um, 
I don't know, but I, I, I suspect it's coming one way or another. Uh, what I would add is that there's something almost more fundamental than, than road pricing, which is, is it, is it possible to, to, to get a carbon tax, carbon pricing working properly within the domestic economy? And if you could do that, then underpinning the whole economy more uh, in, a, in a sort of more ordered way than it does currently, we could have a price of carbon that would just reflect uh, those carbon intensive behaviours across different things. And if we could get to that point in a way that could be organised fairly on an international basis, then you could end up with a, a sort of pricing mechanism that's not just fair domestically, it's then fair to domestic companies as much as to international uh, interactions as well. And I think that that's ultimately where we have to get to if you want to deal with this problem on a global basis, because lest we forget, the UK is, I think, less than 2% of all um, emissions. So this is really an international problem as well. Except we are also, of course, um, um, exporting a lot of our carbon emissions. And so it is an international way of how we are, how, how carbon pricing actually works. Um, uh, and and it is, you, you can't just look at it in, in a domestic context anyway. Of course. You have seen the Europeans proposing a carbon border adjustment mechanism, I think, to to exactly. deal with that issue. So it would be very interesting to know. And, and the UK should be should be really as closely aligned. I know currently um, um, the UK government is trying to walk away as furthest as possible from the European Union, but I, I urge the government to look at that adjustment uh, programme that the EU is, is proposing, and Liberal Democrats are probably going to, to um, suggest that we should be very, very closely aligned to that. Very interesting. Um, Bim, I'm just intrigued. Are you one of the sort of first manifestations of sort of more logical carbon pricing across the economy would be to equalise the tax burden on electricity and gas. At the moment, gas is undertaxed relative to electricity, particularly relative to its carbon intensity. So do you think that actually gas consumers should be paying significantly more? Well, the, the you can do that, but that has to be done in conjunction with all the other things we're talking about in terms of the transition. Because the reason why you price it is not for fun. It's not even to raise money for the Treasury per se. It's so that you can help nudge or encourage people to go into the right low carbon alternatives to, for whatever they're doing. And by doing that gradually over time, so that your ordinary consumer with reasonable expectation doesn't end up paying much more for whatever they're doing. And that's ultimately the trick that the government needs to somehow pull over the whole economy. It's a huge, huge challenge. There's no map for this anywhere in the world. Frankly, when I look, when I look to other countries, I don't see there being any other country that is, that is you know, has, has completely worked this out. So I think that that really is the challenge. But if we don't achieve it, uh, there's obviously a, a, a cost stimulation to the climate that we all appreciate. But there's a real political problem, right? Because if we don't achieve it, you will get people from one wing of maybe the extreme of this debate that will say, uh, look, you know, the we have to have huge taxes, we have to nationalise everything, and the government needs to impose all these things. And on the other side, you will have some people going, look, we told you it was hopeless, it's never going to work, let's just go back to our old economy. And neither of those is the right answer, in my view. And so, yeah, this is a big challenge. Paul, what the Treasury in the next few months is going to finally publish, we hope it's review of net zero, might produce its own net zero strategy along with other government departments. 
and will conduct the Spending Review 2021. What would you in the Climate Change Committee, as well as you in the IFS, be looking for to say, yes, this is a government that's really addressing the scale of the challenge around financing the transition to net zero? What would you be looking for in them? Yeah, these, these are re- this is a really important moment. The, 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 actually, the fact that the Treasury is doing uh, the net zero review at all is, is, is a desperately important um, statement of intent, though it's worth noting that it is already delayed uh, relative to when it was supposed to be uh, published. And this spending review is going to be a crucial moment. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that we need to uh, look for um, in these. Um, we certainly need clarity within the net zero review of at the very least, the broad outlines of um, how the Treasury expects and wants uh, the costs to be shared between taxpayer, consumer, business, um, and so on, enough to provide a lot more certainty than we've got at the moment. I think we need a commitment to a much clearer and better and more consistent set of carbon pricing uh, than we have um, at the moment. I think we need a commitment to the funding for um, innovation uh, that's required, but also funding for the sorts of things that Vera and others have been talking about in terms of the infrastructure for uh, electric cars, as well as uh, much more clarity about how uh, the transition for, um, uh, for, for for home heating and so on is going to occur. I think in the spending review, we're going to need uh, clarity not just for the next couple of years, but for a significantly longer period on how, on how much and how uh, money is going to be spent on the necessary uh, infrastructure, um, uh, of, you know, right across the um, right across the net zero uh, landscape. So I think we there, there, there's an awful lot um, that we need there. Once you dive into the details of individual policies, and we haven't even talked really about the big, big issues that exist in sectors like agriculture uh, and business uh, and, and, and flying and all of these things. I mean, the, the, it's very easy, as it were, for us to be sitting here talking at this relatively high level about some of the principles. But what we really need now is to move, is government to be moving from these high-level principles, to be clear, clear about what the high-level principles are, but then moving to to really solid, clear actions across actually an incredibly wide range of um, areas. And and, and I just want to end by sort of repeating that and repeating what I think Bim said earlier on, which is that the devil in all of this really is in the detail. And one of the problems is that we just don't have detail in a whole host of areas where we need to be making really big strides over the next decade because, as James um, said earlier, you know, it really is the case that doing this now and investing now is going to end up being a lot cheaper um, and more effective than delaying yet more years. So at a high level, I think what we just need is, is a step change, really, in the level of detail and clarity we have on policies right across uh, this, uh, this this waterfront. So one of the big step changes we could have is for this action to be done on a cross-party basis, given the importance of moving the apparent degree of consensus between our panellists 
and the importance of actually these being sort of policies with a degree of long-run stability. Uh, James, do you think Labour would be up for it if if the government said, let's do this on a cross-party basis? I don't see why they wouldn't be. I mean, it, it, again, the devil is, is somewhat in the detail here, but given the consensus around the, the goal, then uh, th- there's no reason why, at least in some of the outline, you wouldn't be able to get to that. The, there are cases for moving faster. I mean, the case has been put to get to net zero much more rapidly than this. And I would add to Paul Johnson's sort of outline of what this might look like in the spending review, uh, the need to also address something we sort of touched on incidentally, which is uh, adaptation. Um, to the impact of climate change. It, it's, it's often treated as sort of the poor cousin uh, in discussions about this, but of course the climate is already changing. It's already imposing all sorts of costs and difficulties on us in lots and lots of different ways. You can see it here in Britain, you see it all around the world, you know, wildfires, floods, problems of food shortages, this sort of thing. That is going to worsen and we are going to have to spend money on this. So alongside the net zero commitment, I think building into this is also what are we going to do with the climate change that's already happening? I think it's an important part of winning a kind of public legitimacy uh, for the programme overall. If we're in a world where we're making all these efforts to try and reduce our carbon emissions uh, and yet the climate is still visibly getting worse. It's a real problem, I think, for, for the public support for action like that. So adaptation, I think, has to be in the spending review as well. Okay, good point. Vera, would you be up for cross-party talks? And oh, I, I'm always up for cross-party talks. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that you get a cross-party consensus all the way, but um, um, talking and deliberating is, is, is very much part of my political DNA. And while we're on that, uh, you know, the, the thing that we need to do uh, to get people behind is citizen climate assemblies or climate citizen assemblies. And, and I, I hear that the government has actually done something, some exercise like this in the in the last few months, but it was so badly publicised that I, even I don't really know what they did. So we need a much bigger, wider public engagement in the necessity and the options that we have, because there are options, um, and, and citizens' assemblies are a very good way of paving the way, not in terms of making decisions on behalf of the government, but making recommendations for politicians to make decisions. And the more we have, the better, but they too cost money and the investment into having um, a a, a wide array of of citizens' assemblies and and, and climate engagement programs for the public to understand why we need to do that and in which way um, uh, it could be resolved and and them and the public, the people, making recommendations to politicians of what they would think is fair and affordable um, and manageable and positive. Um, Those are the exercises that I'm currently, I would love to see from government uh, and I hope they're, they're doing a lot more of. Okay, final word, Bim. Do you think the, that this will require some what we might, uh, as a former civil servant, call courageous decisions by ministers coming up? Do you think that they should be prepared to open up and try and establish a new consensus about where we need to go and how we pay for the changes that are coming? I suspect the former is going to be a bit easier than the latter. Um, but yes, it is going to be difficult because there are still uncertainties because the conservative approach is going to have to be on some level we're going to do this we are waiting for the private sector to innovate and develop and drive costs down and that is not going to be absolutely certain no and that is going to be an inherent difficulty with maybe certain people on the left who may say well no we need to do things in a slightly different way but that's not to say we won't try okay well let's keep talking um That was a great discussion. Thank you all so much. As Paul pointed out, we barely scratched the surface of all the the changes that need to be made. James pointed out the importance of adaptation. We've got an upcoming event uh, with the British Red Cross on 
adaptation both in the UK and globally. And we are also doing some work, hopefully out in September, on how government departments and local government can uh, work more on public engagement around these issues following on from last year's Climate Assembly. But to close, I want to thank all my fantastic panellists, Paul Johnson, Bima Falami, Vera Hobhouse and James Meadway for all their contributions and remind you that there is a wealth of other material available both on Inside Briefing, our regular podcast and on IFG Live. So thank you very much for joining us today. Goodbye. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.